This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy, the fisherman, the woodcarver, and the Southern Baptist, who always said the best cure for idle hands is to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife. Hey, you're listening to Shaun of the South live, and that music you hear behind me are the world-class pickers, FY5. Fourth grade is a pivotal year in anybody's childhood. I believe it's the grade when everybody begins to find their roles in life. The roles become more clearly defined, whereas before they were ambiguous thoughts of what you would become. You would be a spaceman, you'd be a weatherman, or God forbid you would be an Episcopalian. (laughs) But at this stage of life, you have decided which course you will take and these courses these tributaries of life will lead into the main river which will carry you through all the way into the end this is all decided I believe in fourth grade third grade's a little too young 
Sometimes you occasionally still poop your pants. <laughs> Fifth grade, you are a little too old because puberty is beginning to set in. And you, are, you are confused temporarily in your life. It's a, it's a form of temporary insanity, if you ask me, puberty. Those hormones raging change your mind. But fourth grade, right there in that sweet spot, that's when you are deciding the course you will take. There are children who will become athletes. There are kids who will become philosophers and thinkers and poets and singers. And you have people like me who were just a little bit chubby around the midsection because they appreciated ice cream and Oreo cookies a little too much. People like me. In the fourth grade, I played the first base because my father was a little league coach. I did not play first base because I was qualified. I played first base because of favoritism. And everybody on my team knew it, but nobody held it against me. Even JoJo, who was the most athletic person on our team. He was tall. He was lean. He had shoulders that were broad, and his muscles looked like at least a sixth graders. And he played center field. He would stand out by the fence with his glove on his head because the teams we played against, none of them were good enough to hit the ball all the way out to center field. So he just had this bored look on his face while I threw every game with terrible plays, terrible plays from an unskilled athlete who was soft around the middle, who was more excited about going to Dairy Queen when the game was over than he was about turning a double play. And I knew this about myself. Fourth grade, I knew that I was no athlete. I told my father this. I said, Daddy, I'm not a very good first baseman. He said, oh, of course you are. Of course you are. I said, no. We both know that I'm a terrible athlete. And my father didn't try to refute me. He just hung his head, and I knew that he, he knew this was true. He was an athlete. He had been born an athlete. I suggested to my father that he make JoJo first base and put me into the very, very inactive center field. He said, are you sure about that? I said, I, I am sure. I think it's more important that JoJo have a good time than watching a boy who gets excited about things like banana splits, <laughs> try to field a ball at first base, and lose the game. And so the next game, that's what happened. I was in the center field, and JoJo was on the first base bag. It was marvelous to watch him work. He was an artist, JoJo. His father was a janitor at the hospital, and his father had showed up to that game especially, and he still had his uniform on with a big ring of keys on his belt and a blue work shirt with his name embroidered on the chest. He sat on the bleachers, and he watched his son field every play, and he clapped for him, saying, Yeah, JoJo, yeah! And I felt... Very good watching that happen. And I stood in that center field and I daydreamed about hot fudge <laughs> that would be poured all over my Dairy Queen ice cream cone. Those are the things I thought about. And while I was caught up in that kind of thought, there was a ball hit to me. The ball was hit by a big old boy named Jerry Lee. Jerry Lee was a boy who was in the fourth grade officially, who had been held back one year. He was enormous. He had stubble on his face, 
and I believe the rumor was he had armpit hair. And if you would have looked underneath his collar, you might have seen a thick patch of gorilla hair growing up his back and out through his collar. He had eyes that were sharp and piercing. He could look at you. He could look at small birds, and he could make them die just by looking at them. He had arms that were thick like tree trunks and legs that were as big around as wagon wheels, hands like hams and feet like frying pans. He was big. He was hairy. And God help me for saying it, he was ugly. <laughs> Fourth grade, the time of year when you choose what you'll be in life, Jerry Lee, no doubt, was a bully. He was a bully. And he had just hit a ball high into the air. It was sailing back toward the fence. I looked up in the sky and I about made a brick in my pants. <laughs> this was it. The one play of the game, the one ball that was in my area, I ran toward the fence. I held my glove up as high as I could toward the sunlight, and I watched that white ball sail to the blue sky downward in an arc, and I knew that I had it. I would catch this ball. I ran so hard, I was face first into the chain-link fence, and I hit the I hit the fence and it hurt and I fell down and I heard people cheer and they cheered and I saw in the bleachers people were standing and I looked in my own glove and there was the ball tightly clasped in my own leather mitt. I had helped us win that game. Don't ever let anybody tell you that nothing good comes from boys who like ice cream and banana splits more than they do playing the first base. After the game, the players on my team had dogpiled me. And a dogpile is when every player of the team who has a bad case of body odor jumps on top of the player of the team who deserves the credit for winning the game. And they rub their stank all over this poor unfortunate little boy. And they slap him on the shoulder and they shout celebratory phrases. And I never felt so good. It was the first important play I'd ever made, and I never even saw it coming. After the dog pile, I, I stood up and brushed the dust off my cheap uniform, and I saw Jerry Lee, who was straddling his bicycle. His bicycle had a baseball bat bungee-corded around the center bar, and he had his feet on both sides of the wheel, standing wide-legged, his hands resting on the handlebars. And he looked at me, and he gave me that look that could kill small, feral creatures. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to kill you. And that was all he said. And my blood ran cold. He jumped onto his pedals, and he biked away, standing on those pedals, until I didn't see him. And my buddy Greg came to find me. He said, what was that all about? I said, Greg, Jerry Lee just said he's going to kill me. And Greg said, hmm, where would you like to be buried? <laughs> Jerry Lee was a boy they called the Hammer. He earned this nickname from an event which we had all witnessed. We were on our bikes at the high school football field. Children 
on the weekend. Jerry Lee came rolling up with a toolbox on the back of his bike, his daddy's toolbox. He dug through that toolbox and found a hammer. And in an arduous display of might, he stood in the end zone and he hurled that hammer to the other side of the field. The hammer sailed through the air doing boomerang flips until it hit the end zone right next to the goalpost. And we all marveled at the strength of this boy who had no business being in the fourth grade. One of my friends was stupid enough to say, I bet you couldn't do that again. Jerry Lee looked at him and he said, how about you put your money where your mouth is, punk? He said, five dollars. My friend looked around and he said, I don't have five dollars. He said, you better get it or I'm going to throw that hammer at you. We emptied our pockets and we came up with three ninety-eight, and Jerry Lee the Merciful decided that that would be enough. We put that money into somebody's hand who was a neutral bystander. Jerry Lee biked to the other side of the field. He picked up that hammer and he said, watch and learn, suckers. He cocked his arm back as far as he could and he tossed that hammer so hard that we swore we could hear his shoulder pop. A hammer sailed through the air, end over end, painting the blue sky with nothing but a brown streak. And it surpassed the goalpost and the end zone. And it hit a car in the parking lot. He was a strong boy. And that particular day, he was $3.98 richer. He was not a baseball player. He was not much of anything but a troublemaker. He was always in trouble with the teachers. He was always in a a form of after-school detention. He was always getting his name called out by those in charge. Jerry Lee was not the kind of kid to be fooled with. I had known a friend of mine who had gotten paint on Jerry Lee's shirt during art class, red paint. They were learning how to watercolor paint, and my friend had gotten the paint a little too viscous, and he was a little too ambitious while he was mixing the paint in the water dish, and a splash of red flung up onto Jerry Lee's collar, and Jerry Lee looked at my friend, and he said, you're going to die today. And it was out on the playground behind the jungle gym that I watched Jerry Lee bury his fists into the ribs of my friend. It was serious. I was going to die for catching that fly ball to center field. The next day we were on the playground. We were on the playground. My friend Greg and I were playing tetherball. Greg and I tossed that ball around the pole and I saw Greg whisper. He said, here he comes. We were playing back and forth. Our hearts weren't in the game. And Jerry Lee came walking up. He came walking up without even a hint of warning. And he looked at me and he said, Don't think you can hide from me. I hadn't forgot what you did. And I'm still going to kill you. My buddy Greg was known for having a little bit of a hot temper. And he had the tetherball in his hand when Jerry Lee had said that to me. And I saw Greg take that ball onto his shoulder and rear back and hurl it as hard as he could at Jerry Lee. 
The ball sailed through the air and it hit Jerry Lee right upside the face and then it was caught by the tension of the cord which was holding it to that steel pole poking out of the ground and it knocked Jerry Lee backward about a foot. And the sound of the ball hitting his face sounded like a basketball in the gymnasium. And Jerry Lee took a breath in and he shook his head and he pointed at my friend Greg. He said, now you're going to die. And Jerry Lee walked away. The teachers never saw it. And I knew that there would be two graves <laughs> dug that very night. After school, we were riding our bikes, and Jerry Lee was riding behind us. And I could feel my heart pounding in my chest. My father had taught me how to fight before. But the lessons really never stuck with me because I didn't see it as a necessary skill in life. If someone ever threatened me, normally my course of action was to concede and say, you win, you're bigger than I am, you're hairier than I am, what can I do to make it up to you? Let's all be friends. But this wouldn't work with Jerry Lee. Jerry Lee chased us down on his bike. He got next to me and he pushed me while I was riding and my bike fell onto its side. And then he pushed Greg, and Greg's bike fell down. And two little helpless slugs that we were laid on the ground, skinned up. And Jerry Lee stood over us like a Herculean devil. He grinned, and his teeth were covered in green slime, and his eyes were a little bit yellow. And he said, you should see yourselves laying on the ground. And my buddy Greg, the bookworm that he was, said to Jerry Lee, I think you mean lying on the ground. <laughs> and I knew we were dead. <laughs> but life doesn't always work out the way you think it's going to work out. The people in life who you think you have figured out will surprise you, both for the good and the bad. But I like to think mostly for the good. My buddy Greg talked and he talked and he talked and he talked his way out of this mess we had found ourselves in. Greg suggested that since Jerry Lee was not really one of the academic sort, that we would work out a trade. That both Greg and I would do some of Jerry Lee's schoolwork for him in exchange to continue our oxygen habit. And Greg spoke so poetically, and he argued with such vehemence that I saw Jerry Lee loosen his fists and let them hang by his side. And he was actually considering it. And when Greg had finally finished speaking, Jerry Lee said, Okay, fine. Meet me in my house. We hopped on our bikes, and we rode to Jerry Lee's house. It was a run-down mobile home with mold on the tin metal sides. We walked up the rotten steps which led to his porch and into his home, which smelled like a chain-smoking billy goat cooking a pot of collards. <laughs> and we sat at his table while he brought out his paperwork with messy handwriting. And there was something different about Jerry Lee. He handed the papers to us and all of the answers on his math homework was wrong and all of the sentences he wrote for, for English class were, 
were poorly written with terrible handwriting. And he ran his fingers through his hair and he said, I just ain't no good in school. Embarrassment in him. Embarrassment, which surprised me because in order to be embarrassed meant he cared what Greg and I thought about him. And Greg said, no, no, no. This is fine. We can work with this. This really isn't as bad as I thought it'd be. And we figured out that Jerry Lee was a sad child. Now, we'd never noticed this before. It's hard to notice when a boy is sad if he's the kind of boy who uses his fists for entertainment. We discovered that Jerry Lee had very few friends. And that most of the time he waited for his father to come home late after working double shifts at the paper mill. And Jerry Lee would have a sandwich prepared for him made of bologna and white bread and mayonnaise sitting on the table. And Jerry Lee would be sitting there waiting for his father. And they would talk and they would laugh. And they only got about 30 minutes together before his father would say, All right, Jerry Lee, time to go to bed. And Jerry Lee would go into his bedroom. And that was all he got to see his daddy. And Greg and I helped him with his schoolwork. And we looked at each other periodically, my buddy and I. And we felt what can only be described as sympathy. Sympathy. We stayed there late that night. When I got home, my mother was worried. She said, where have you been? And I explained to her the entire situation. My mother has always had an open ear. She said, you know, his mama died when he was just a little boy. His mama died and his daddy had to raise those two boys on his own. He's had a hard life, Jerry Lee has. I went to bed that night and I thought about Jerry Lee. I didn't feel very afraid of him anymore. The next week at school, after we had done... Plenty of Jerry Lee's homework. I will never forget hearing the teacher hand papers back to the class and remark out loud for the entire class to hear. Why, Jerry Lee, she said, I cannot believe how well you're doing in school. And Jerry Lee looked at at me. And he looked at Greg and his face was hard. He had a persona to maintain. This was the fourth grade. Fourth graders can't go around letting everybody know that they're softies on the inside, but we knew. It wasn't that long later, we were in a baseball field, all of us, and I was in the center field, and I was having a wonderful day, avoiding too much sunlight, picking my nose, and I saw Jerry Lee come up to bat, and he was swinging the bat in circles, trying to loosen up those man-sized shoulders he had, which were much too big for the fourth grade. And the pitcher threw a ball at him, and it was a strike. But he swung at it hard enough to break his ever-loving ribs. And the pitcher threw another ball at him, and he swung again, even though it was well out of the strike zone. And my father, even though Jerry Lee was not on our team, said to him, Jerry, time out. And he walked up toward Jerry. And I couldn't hear what he said, but I could see my father demonstrating with his hands Everything there was to know about the strike zone 
And I have to guess that my father was saying, Jerry, don't swing at anything that's not six inches above your belt level. Jerry Lee nodded. He nodded. And the next pitch was thrown. And Jerry Lee didn't swing. It was a ball. The next pitch was thrown. Another ball that was below his belt level. And then the pitch of all pitches straight down the pipe. A four-seam fastball. Jerry Lee cocked his bat back. He kicked his leg up into the air. And he stepped forward and followed through. And the ball was hit so hard that you could hear that crack three counties away. And it sailed through the air. Straight toward me. And I looked up into the sky. I was running after it. And I knew I could catch it. And that ball arced through the blue sky toward me. And I dove. And I dove a little bit to the left on purpose. And the ball went a little bit to my right. And I missed the ball. It hit the grass and it bounced a few times. And I laid there for a few seconds before getting up and picking up the ball and throwing it to second base. By the time the ball reached second base, Jerry Lee had already reached third base. And the coach called him home. And Jerry Lee started running for home. And the second baseman threw the ball as hard as he could to the catcher, but it was too late. Jerry Lee scored a home run. His team screamed, they hollered, they shouted, and they dogpiled him on the field. Jerry Lee was at the bottom of that dogpile while 14 boys rubbed stinky bodies and slapped him on the face and on the butt. And after the game, I saw Jerry Lee hop on his bike, and I swear I saw the semblance of a smile crawl across his mouth. And he said, I know what you did. Thanks. I said, I didn't do nothing. He said, yeah, you did. I said, Jerry Lee, maybe this is too much to ask. But we're going to get some ice cream at Dairy Queen, and I'd like it if maybe you'd join us. We rode toward Dairy Queen, and I can think of no happier feeling than seeing a red and white Dairy Queen sign in the distance. Jerry Lee ordered two ice cream cones, and so did I. And we sat on the tailgate of my daddy's truck, and I saw Jerry Lee laugh. I saw him smile. I didn't see Jerry Lee next year at school. His father had moved to Virginia, along with he and his brother. But I think about him every now and then. And I think we aren't who we are in this life because of the way our parents made us, or even because of the positions we play in the field of life. We are who we are because of little choices that you don't think mean anything, but they mean everything. Choices to be nice. I believe life is made up of little choices. And I choose right now, today, to eat two cones of ice cream.
Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a real pleasure. Hope you join us next week. That music here behind me is FY5. Mike Finders, Aaron Youngberg, Ryan Dricky, Rich Zimmerman, and Aaron Youngberg on the banjo and pedal steel. This band doesn't play around. They're selected as the official showcase artist for the 2017 International Bluegrass Music Association Conference. Check out their album, The Way These Things Go. You can get it on FY5Band.com or CD Baby, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, and any other major outlet you can think of online. To find out anything more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouth.com. And while you're there, hope you drop me a line because I love to hear from my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, remember... There is no limit to what you can accomplish when you're supposed to be doing something else. Adios. (laughs) 